keys of the Blackstone Retreat for letting me be a part of Blackstone. I'm grateful to every one of you for letting me be a part of your life. Before I go any further, I would like to take just a brief moment to welcome each and every one of you to this, the intellectual hour. or those who plan these wonderful weekends have more or less followed the pattern as set forth in the immortal words of Dr. Bob. Let's keep it simple. But this weekend, for some reason, they have more or less strayed from this practice. But this morning on the same program, we have two brains. Both of them a little wet, perhaps. <laughs> but nevertheless, two thinkers. Thinkers. And this has worried me a little bit because well, I know that in a crowd as big as this, there, there must be somebody that's almost normal. And I'm afraid that there's going to be quite a bit said this morning that will just be over your head. <laughs> but should this happen, don't, don't get upset and don't go away mumbling to yourself. If you just remember what it was that you didn't quite get until after the meeting, if you see Bob, he'll explain it to you. <laughs> Last night, when, when Tommy asked for all of the new people at Blackstone to stand, it, it was a heartwarming sight to see it. Over half of the people in this auditorium stand. And it, it reminded me of the first time that I came to Blackstone. I, I had missed the first five retreats, but, you know, I, I felt right at home here the first time I came. I, I remember we got in here kind of early, Hazel and I, that Friday afternoon, and we signed in and paid our $2 and got all that plunder stashed away. And, then we was leaning around in the lobby and up and down the hall. And finally, I said, where's the coffee? The coffee lounge, that, that's on the second floor. Well, how you get up there? <laughs> well, you, you go down them steps. From the first floor, we, we went downstairs to the second floor. <laughs> and and it, it, it was nice. The, the coffee was good. And 
the atmosphere and the fellowship was warm and friendly. And we spent the whole afternoon down there, laughing and joking and greeting old friends and meeting new. It, it was wonderful. It was good AA. Now, finally, somebody said, but time to eat. Well, where's the dining room? Oh, that's in the basement. How you get out there? Well, you, you, you go up them steps. might have been a little bit confusing to, to some people, but, but not to me. <laughs> my mind been working like this all my life. From the second floor, we went upstairs to the basement. <laughs> and I, I thought, how fitting and, and proper, how appropriate that AA should meet in this house. <laughs> the, the folks that built it was drunk. I've been here now for a day and a half, and looking over this crowd, I determined that the median age tells me that our pleasurable days are few and far between. <laughs> so if so a friend of mine, or at least I thought he was a friend, and I've learned since to resent him, gave me this just last week, and I thought it would be unfair if I didn't share it with you. And it's titled, How to Know You're Getting Older. Everything hurts, and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. The gleam in your eye is from the sun hitting your bifocals. You feel like the night before and you haven't been anywhere. Your little black book contains names only ending in MD. You decide to, procrast to procrastinate but never get around to it. Your mind makes contracts your body can't keep. A dripping faucet causes uncontrollable bladder urge. You know all the answers, but nobody asks you the questions. You look forward to a dull evening. You turn out the light for economic rather than romantic reasons. 
You sit in a rocking chair and can't get it going. Your knees buckle, but your belt won't. After painting the town red, you have to take a long rest before applying the second coat. <laughs> Dialing long distance wears you out. You're startled the first time somebody calls you old timer. You burn the midnight oil until nine o'clock. Your back goes out more than you do. And your pacemaker makes the garage door go up when you watch a pretty girl walk by. You, you sink your teeth into a stake and they stay there. Now, the only thing that, had, that, that has to do with our speaker for this evening <laughs> is that I think he fits the median age that I spoke of, as do I. As I said, my introduction to our speaker is going to be very short because I don't even know him. His name is Bob C., and he comes from some damn place out in California. I think it's Los Angeles. So if he's got anything to say, I'm going to let him say it. Bob? <laughs> My name is Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and I do fit the description... I'm sorry to say, I, uh, it wasn't always that way. I, uh, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, a relatively young man, by the litany that was just read off to us there. I, uh, I was 27 years old, and I, uh, I know exactly about all these old people he just described, because now I am one. But in those days, I went into a meeting in Southern California in a little town called Downey. And uh, like I say, I was 27 years old, and it was a very depressing evening for me. I, I went into this room, and it was full of old men. Very old men. And I looked them over, you know, and naturally I thought, well, of course they don't drink anymore. It would kill them. And they, they were bald-headed and they had gray hair and, 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 and they wore glasses and they had 
false teeth and a couple of the old codgers were sitting on little round donut shaped cushions and, and then they said if you want what we have and, and I and I no I didn't really want I didn't know I didn't at all I had no, no. now of course I uh, I think bald is beautiful and I I, uh, I wear glasses and I have a few teeth that aren't mine and I'm on a first name basis with my proctologist and uh, so I, I, I fit the description but in those days it was uh, well in, in those days in our AA meetings out there uh, we did not have a format now I don't know if you have a format here or not in your local groups that, that you regularly attend but out there we do and it's a little thing that tells the leader and we have different terms you know the East Coast and the West Coast have different terms. When we say you're going to lead tonight, that does not mean you're going to speak tonight. Out there, when we say you're going to lead tonight, that means you're going to do what Lynn just did. That's the leader. The guy that talks is the guy that gets to pitch tonight. And out here, you've got pigeons, and out there, we've got babies. And those are what my wife calls tribal customs. Now, my wife is, you saw Sybil, she raised her hand. She's going to talk tomorrow night. Now, uh, I like to get it in before she gets a crack at it, uh, because Sybil's been sober longer than Methuselah. <laughs> the guy introduced me the other night said she's been sober so dry so long she's a fire hazard, and that's a and that's a fact. But we'll let her tell about that. One of these nights, I'm going to give my talk about what it's like to be married to a living legend. Uh, but I'll tell my story tonight, and she can, she'll straighten you out tomorrow night on whatever I told you tonight. Um, they didn't have a format. They didn't have anything for the, the leaders to read in those days. They didn't even have any traditions in those days, and they did very strange things. And they never said to me that night at my first meeting, uh, welcome to the regular meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in Downey, California, or anything like that. They didn't say that. The first words I ever, ever heard in my life in an AA meeting where tonight it's Joe's birthday. That's the first words I ever heard. And I thought, who cares? So what? What does that got to do with anything? That's about, about Alcoholics Anonymous, about not drinking. Well, they, uh, do, you, oh, do you out here when you have AA birthdays, do you sing happy birthday uh, back here in some of your groups? Not, well, you're very lucky. We sing happy birthday out there. It's grim. The singing is horrible. I mean, they don't sing together. And some of you people have been out there, no, we, we never get in tune. We're not in the same. Oh, it's just awful. And I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, they, they got, what they got is they got a cupcake for this. And, and they had said, now, old Joe, they said, is, is one year old, and he's 65 years old. If he's a day, I know that. And they, get this, they put this one candle in this cupcake. And I'm watching this little old man walk across. I'm watching this pageant go by is what it is. And this bunch of old men began to sing Happy Birthday. And I thought I'd go out of my mind. I, I, and when he blew out that candle, and this bunch of old men went, Ape, whoopee, oh my God. Is this what they do on a Saturday night for a good time? Now, I'm a, I, you know, I mean, the singing hasn't improved a bit. You must come out and hear it sometime. I'm a, uh, I'm a trained singer. I know good singing. I, I sang in the choir at San Quentin, and I know what it sounds like when, it, when it's done right. 
But that, that we have never improved at all. I, uh, I want to um, explain uh, to, to, there probably aren't too many newcomers here, but just for the heck of it, may I, just so I know which way to go, uh, just for the heck of it, and uh, maybe uh, for the fun of it, and maybe to um, make you feel good, and maybe to make you feel embarrassed, uh, I don't know, would it be possible for anyone here that has been sober less than 30 days in Alcoholics Anonymous to, to just hold your hand up and let us see you? If, if there's anyone here that's been sober for less than 30 days, would you hold up your hand? If there is, I'd like to know. If not, then I'm talking to a room full of old-timers. And there, hey, there we go. A couple up in the balcony there. There's one in the balcony. Okay. Wonderful. Well, that's wonderful. That's fine. It's been my experience for uh, every number of hands that goes up, there's an equal number of hands that people that don't hold up their hands. So I want to welcome those of you who didn't hold up your hands also that are new here to uh, this, this funny farm of ours. Uh, what we do, and you may be wondering uh, who I am. I know I did, first time I ever saw a guest speaker. I thought, what is he, the president of AA? I didn't, you know, we don't know. And if you're new and you're that new, you don't know either. You don't know that we haven't got any presidents of AA. Um, it's a very strange organization. And it just happens tonight, happens to be my turn. That's about it. But uh, we uh, stay sober sort of by uh, telling one another our stories. I tell you my story, you tell me your story, and we stay sober together. Now, ordinarily, I don't tell the part of my story that I'm going to tell this evening. But uh, once upon a time, I did tell this story, uh, uh, and I uh, am occasionally asked to repeat this portion of it, as I was this evening, and therefore I, I will tell you this part of my story, because what we do, newcomers, is we, have a little, we do have a little formula we follow. We tell what we used to be like, if we can, and what happened, and what we're like now, or maybe even what we hope to be like later on. So, um, well, what I used to be like part is uh, that uh, after the end of the Second World War, I resigned my commission as a major in the Marine Corps, and I went back to uh, Cornell, and I finished my master's degree, and then I went out to the West Coast, and I, between uh, Berkeley and UCLA and Caltech, I uh, matriculated for my doctorate there. I got my PhD and uh, I worked under grants from the, for the Carnegie Institute, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation. I uh, was one of the youngest men ever admitted to the Royal Astronomical Society of London. Some of you know, may know Dr. Hale, who was the founder of the Mount Wilson, Mount uh, Palomar Astrophysical Complex. And uh, prior to the dedication of the big instrument at Mount Palomar, Dr. Hale died and I had the honor of being appointed administrator pro tem until they could find a permanent director. And I maintained that uh, position until I joined Alcoholics Anonymous, at which time my sponsor told me I'd have to quit telling those lies. Uh, I, uh, but the... Uh, that is what I used to be like. <laughs> when I joined AA, if my mouth was moving, I was lying. <laughs> and that's a fact. 
I, 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 I really, I did that down in Durham, and I was asked to do it again. I was embarrassed. I saw one lady get up and walk out. <laughs> but I did it anyway. Come on back, honey. I'm only kidding. <laughs> uh, I, um, you know, you think, what an egomaniac. Well, you see, there's a reason for that. I... I used to play doctor in the bar, medical doctor. Well, I used to get, I know none of you fellows ever did that, of course. You never lied in the bar to the people you were with. I, uh, I used to play medical doctor, and that was okay for a while. I got a few miles out of being a medical doctor, but uh, sometimes I'd, I'd run into a real medical doctor. And then that would be, I don't know what I was doing in a bar where a real medical doctor would go. It was very rare, but... Uh, I, you know, or else they'd want me to squeeze this or feel that, and so I didn't play medical doctor too much. I, uh, but when I latched on to being an astrophysicist, I became an astrophysicist and remained an astrophysicist all the time I drank, and I'd sit there and tell these guys all about astronomy and about the expanding, wheeling galaxies, and they didn't know what I was talking about, neither did I, but it, it, it sounded good, and I got a lot of free drinks and a lot of miles out of it. And so that's why I became an astrophysicist, because you wouldn't want to know me if you knew me. And that's a fact. I mean, who wants to talk to a carpenter? Who wants to talk to a guy that went all the way through the Second World War and never got above the rank of private? Never. I mean, that's, there's nothing interesting there, and I knew it. And I knew you'd know it, and so I, I, I made up these good stories, and, and, and I know that a lot of you did the same thing. And that's one of the beautiful things about Alcoholics Anonymous, is knowing that at last we're home. I, uh, I remember the, that first night vividly, uh, as, as most all of us do. If we were halfway sober, halfway conscious, we remember our first night in Alcoholics Anonymous. Of course we do. But I remember after this man blew out that candle and this bunch of old men, really, I mean, it, I just thought, oh, I, well, I guess I deserve this. This is what I'll have to put up with forever. Sit here and sing with these men. And, but I wasn't going to like it. I knew that. The, the old man, because it was his birthday, got to talk. And then he said something to the effect that he had beat up his old gray-haired mother and got ten bucks out of her purse to get drunk on, and then they gave him a hand for this. And I'm trying to think, what kind of a funny farm am I in here? And then they came up to me, and they said, what you, you young people, that man in the balcony who just raised his hand, they may give you this shot too. They said to me, they said, well, we're so glad that a young fellow like you has come to Alcoholics Anonymous before you've gone as far as we have gone. Well, now I had just got to the San Quentin at the time, and, and I wondered how far these old toothless wonders had gone. And, uh, and they started saying things about easy does it, put the plug in the jug, and I'm wondering, now, I only recall hearing one thing that night that I really latched on to. And it's the one thing that we don't talk about anymore in Alcoholics Anonymous. Leave it to me to pick the one thing that they decided to throw out. Uh, they talked a lot in those days, and some of you older heads will remember, that they used to talk a lot about 
the keen alcoholic mind. Now that I identified with. I knew I had one of those. They talked a lot about how smart we were. And even in the book, there's a little reference to it, that somehow when we work, we work a little better than the guy next to us. I know I always did. I was gone for three or four days and trying to make up like crazy for being gone. But I got the idea that, that they talked about we, 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 we were better at writing, we were better at thinking, we were better at working, and we, we had what they referred to as the keen alcoholic mind. And I kind of got the idea that God had kind of skimmed the top 10% of the cream of humanity off and made alcoholics out of them. And that's not true. We don't talk about it anymore because it doesn't matter anymore. It's not relevant whether you have a keen mind, which you may have. You may have a keen mind. You may be dumb. You may be stupid. You may be tall, short, fat, skinny, black, white. All these things don't matter. The only thing that matters, the only thing, the only requirement in the world to become an alcoholic is to be a human being. That's all. Not super smart. And very few of us are, as a matter of fact. We're just... Now, having talked about the keen alcoholic mind, I suppose the next logical thing to tell you about would be how um, come I went to San Quentin. I think I'll tell you about that because I know you're wondering about that. I know you want to know why I went to San Quentin. Of course you do. There's a head nodder. Of course you do. In San Quentin, we want to know what you're in San Quentin for. That's the first thing we say. What are you in for? That's a very natural thing. Uh, bearing in mind the keen alcoholic mind, I'll, um, I would like now, while I was on that tack, I would like to, to impress you with the cleverness of my criminal mind. If... if because you're going to go, I figure you ought to go for a good reason. Um, I'd like to tell you that I was involved in the Brinks holdup, for example. You remember that Brinks holdup? That was there was a lot of planning in there and a nice little brain work, and they got caught. But that's irrelevant. That's an occupational hazard. But there was a lot of nice thinking and planning went into that job. Now I'd like to tell you that that's kind of a crook I was. Uh, but what I have to tell you is that um, I held up the hotel that I lived in. Uh, <laughs> which is a far cry from the Brinks job. I, uh, uh, what I did is I was, uh, after the war was over in August of 1945, I uh, moved into a hotel in, in Los Angeles, in, in, in a middle-class hotel. It was not a, a, a skid row or anything like that. And uh, it was a pretty nice hotel. And I lived there from August of 1945 until May of 19. 46 when I held up the desk clerk. Now, the reason I held up the desk clerk was I, the only problem I ever had with alcohol was running out of money. That's the only problem I ever had, as far as I can recall, at that time. I was always running out of money, and that meant running out of booze. Um, so Memorial Day of 1946 uh, was just a wonderful day, and I, uh, you know, some of the times, can, you know, we can recall those wonderful times. And it's the re recollection of those wonderful times that, that really keeps us going, trying to, trying to get another one. And uh, this was one of those good times. The music was right. The girls was right. And the booze was right. And everything was so good. And I just didn't want to stop. And at 8 o'clock at night, on Memorial Day, I ran out of money. So I got this idea 
to hold up the desk clerk to whom I've been paying rent to for over six months. And uh, now I didn't have a gun, but I, I walked uh, off. You see, in the lobby, off here, off the lobby, was this place called the Zimba Room. And there was a piano bar in there, and that's where I was in there. And I ran out of money. So I, I walked out of the Zimba Room in here into the, into the desk of the lobby, and I put my hand in my coat pocket and I made a meat face, and I said, give me all your money. And he says, oh, Bob, he said, you can't do that. And I, I said I thought I could. So he opened the drawer, and I reached across, and I got the money, and then I went back in there into the Zimba room, and I ordered drinks for the house, and I did. And in seven minutes, I was on my way to San Quentin, and that's the truth, so help me God. Uh, now, if you've been reading today's newspaper and watching television today and hearing about the crimes that uh, are committed uh, and the, the sentences that are doled out, you may say that hardly seems possible. Well, I hardly think it's possible, too, but it happened. Take my word for it. Um, they, um, things were different then. Uh, I just, that's what they sent me to prison. Now, when I went to prison, um, I got my start in show business there. Uh, it ended there, too, come to think of it, but uh, that's where I got my start. Uh, Warden Duffy was a very advanced penologist, and we had a radio show that came out over uh, the 11 western states, went up into British Columbia and into Alberta, and uh, I got to be the radio announcer. And if any of you lived out there at that time, you might have remembered our, our real showstopper, uh, I'd come on and I'd say, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, this is inmate number 4127. This program is emanating to you from within the walls of one of Northern California's most exclusive resorts, San Quentin by the Sea. <laughs> and then the choir would play Time on My Hands. That was our theme song. <laughs> and it was a real PR job. It really made you want to go. Um, I, uh, I, I don't know how I'm on this kick. I'll just tell you that we... I remember, I often wish they had made tape recordings in those days. Of course, uh, they didn't. But uh, I would love to hear some of those, some of those programs. And we, we, we worked hard to put those shows on. It was serious stuff with us. Now, why they dressed up, uh, us up in choir robes to sing, I don't know. Because it sure was. But we, we had maroon, maroon choir robes with little white Lord Fauntleroy collars and shaved heads. And... And, we, and, and, and now, I'm not making this up. This is the truth. I know people think I'm kidding when I tell this. We, with, we sang a song one night, and some, you know, some of you know it's a very nice church song, but you've got to get the picture. You've got to see where we were. The song is called Bless This House. <laughs> and we, I, 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 honest to God, we sang it, Bless This House. Bless these walls so firm and stout, <laughs> keeping want and hunger out. And bless the folks who dwell within and keep them pure and free from sin. <laughs> and we sure were. Uh, well, if you're a newcomer or a relatively newcomer, listen, you don't have to be a newcomer to, uh, to get thirsty. Uh, I'll figure this out. No, can, nobody can hide a drink on me, by God. <laughs> I haven't lost the touch. 
You must be awfully bewildering. I know how bewildering it was to me when I was new, sitting around wondering what's going on at these meetings, wondering how anything that's being said could possibly <laughs> be of any benefit to my drinking problem or whatever my problem was. I didn't think it was a drinking problem anyway. And surely it may be that way for you. Maybe you're, maybe you're wondering tonight if you're an alcoholic, which seems perfectly normal. If you're, if you're not as one of that, what Bill Wilson called a last gasper, Bill Wilson says that in the early days when AA first started, <clears throat> my wife will tell you about the last Gaspers. Um, Sybil was, a, well, yeah, yeah, I remember that. I don't want to go into that. Sybil will talk about that. Um, anyway, uh, if you're wondering about whether or not you're an alcoholic, um, it, it, it makes great sense to wonder. Because most people under 40 come to believe that they're an alcoholic by attending AA meetings. And the reason they come to believe this and then come to know it is because they listen to other people tell their stories. Most alcoholics, myself included, when I first got here, I could recall the last drink or the last drunk that I had, the last time I got in jail, the last time I wrecked a car, the last time I spent my whole paycheck and promised that I wasn't going to, the last time I got in a fight and got beat up, or the other way around, it was very seldom the other way around, I mostly got beat up, but um, whatever, it was usually the last event when I came to AA that I could recall. I had never, I was never able to recall with any clarity all the things that had happened to me in my drinking career until I got to AA. Now, after we come to AA, though, we sit around and we listen to these stories that we tell, and for me and my wife and for most of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous, all the members of Alcoholics that I know, as they sit in AA meetings, for as long as we sit in AA meetings, somebody will always be reminding us of things that we had done and forgot forever. From the first meeting that we go to, they will remind us of things that we had forgotten. And the story of what we used to be like is a constantly changing picture. When I first got here, I was just a little bit alcoholic, perhaps. And as I listened to your stories, I said, yeah, I did that. I did that. Yes, I did that. And, and I'd be nodding my head, you know, or somebody poking me in the ribs. And uh, yes, yeah, I did that. Till finally, by listening to other people tell what a word that you'll hear sometime in a... In a rather derogatory term, they're drunkologue. You'll hear people say, oh, all we heard was a drunkologue. But without the guy telling you what he used to be like, it's sometimes impossible for the newcomer to know what he's like. And so you stick around and you listen to these other stories and you'll be reminded of things you did and forgot or things that you had buried so deeply that you didn't want to recall until you heard someone else. For example, I... Once in this same bar, a lot of things happened in this bar, in this same bar one night... I ran out of money. This is before. And actually, I never went back to that same bar after I held him up. But the, uh, this night I ran out of something to drink, and I uh, ran out of money again. So I went upstairs to my room, came back down with a very sad face on. Had this all planned. Very sad face. Suddenly I was stricken. I had left happy, happy, came back stricken. And they said, what's the matter, Bob? And I said, oh, I, I just got a telegram. My mother just died. And they said, oh. And I said, yeah. Now she's healthy 
as the day is long and about three blocks from where I'm telling this story. And what they said, where, and this is the funny thing, I just thought about the course of this at the moment. They said, where, where, where is your mother? And I said, Norfolk, Virginia, which is a long way from Los Angeles, you see. That way I could get it as far away as possible. And they said, uh, oh, and I said, oh, what a rotten son I am. God, I, I mean, you know, I'm such a bum. I haven't got any money or anything. I, I can't even get to my own mother's funeral. And what makes it worse, I, I don't even have money to send flowers to my mother's funeral. And uh, these guys were a bunch of nice guys. And pretty soon I noticed this little envelope floating around the bar, see? And these guys slipping money in, money in. Back around the bartender, he opens a cash register, he puts a little money in it and writes something on her. It says Bob on there, just nice little conservative Bob. And uh, they hand me this envelope. And, ooh, it's fat, you know. And, uh, ooh, ooh. But I don't react like that. I, I, I you know, I properly humble and properly uh, thankful that they gave it to me, and, and then I, I, I put it in my coat, and I, I walked out just, just, just not too fast, not too slow, just like a man on his way to the florist to buy flowers for his mother's funeral, that walk, and uh, the, I, when I got outside, man, I ripped this thing open, and, oh man, all that green money, down the street I go, and I never gave it another thought for a while, until... I don't care how big a city Los Angeles is, there's always somebody who knows somebody. And pretty soon my poor father's getting condolence letters. Oh, you talk about being ostracized. Well, I had done lots of things. This is before I went to prison. But this was the beginning of the ostracization. My father said, you're no son of mine. Any son, any guy that would tell, I agree with him, any that would do a thing like that, tell that his mother is dead so he can get money to, to just to drink on it is no son of mine and he meant it but I never told that story when I came to AA because you know I just didn't want to tell that story I'd, I could talk about being fights and getting drunk and throwing up on people but I didn't want to tell that story but this is why if you tell me your story and I tell you my story and I really tell it we're both going to get well because one night down at the hole in the ground, there was a gal named Madeline Swayze, and she was from Oklahoma. God love her. Madeline Swayze and Grant Swayze. And she was part Indian and part Irish. And she used to go to a bar there in Oklahoma where it was all Irish. So this one day, she's out of drinking money, and she goes in there with a sad face. They said, what's the matter, Madeline? She's telling the story at the hole in the ground, standing up telling it, you see. And she says, I, my mother just died. And they said, glory be, let's have a wake. And so they, they held a wake right there. Mother's, of course, to be uh, somewhere else, of course, naturally. And um, so they drank all day. They drank all night. Madeline got what she wanted. The next day, they all came over to keep, uh, carry on the wake, and she had to hide her mother in the closet. Now, that was, Mama was a good sport, apparently. My mother wasn't. But when Madeline Swayze told that story, and Sybil was there the night that that happened, it, it, I felt, my God, I'm not a freak. I mean, if I am, at least there's a lot like me. And it's not quite so bad. I'm not the only crummy guy in the world. Other people have done this thing and their brothers will be happy and it's not so bad. I, I have to t tell you a few of these things to show you how, 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 how sick I was. I had another thing. I have a scar here on my arm. But I have to take my coat off and roll up my sleeve to show it. I've got a big scar here on my arm. And even to Sybil, after I married Sybil, She'd ask me how I got that scar, I wouldn't tell her. 
I wouldn't tell her how I got this scar because that was the one thing I had never heard in an AA meeting. And this is the one thing I, I used to say. I didn't say to Sybil, I'll never tell you. I said, maybe someday I'll tell you. Maybe. Maybe someday I'll tell you. One night a guy was telling me about how over in London, he was an air controller in London. He's telling about how uh, he had his date with a girl and uh, he's in a pub and uh, he was supposed to be there at 8 o'clock and he looks up and it's 10 o'clock. You know how it is. You get going, playing darts and all of a sudden drinking beer and so he, oh my God, what am I going to do? So he reached out and picked up the, the whatever small change he had on the bar, a couple of half crowns and so and swallowed them. <clears throat> swallowed all those half crowns. Then he ran across the street to the, to the hospital and said, cut me open. I just swallowed some half crowns. And he never thought the doctor was going to ask him, how did you do that? But the doctor asked him that. And, and then the doctor said, take some milk of magnesia. You're going to be all right. Well, that isn't what he wanted. You understand. What he wanted was the doctor to actually cut a hole in his stomach and take the half crowns out, sew him up, put him in a hospital bed. He wasn't worried about that at all because then he could call up the girl and say, hey, this terrible surgery, that's why I stood you up. And I understand that perfectly. Now, when he told me that, then I could tell about this. Then I could tell about this. And then I could even tell my own wife, who had never told my own wife about this. I had just got out of San Quentin and I met a girl. Now, when you just get out of San Quentin and you meet a girl, that's a big day in your life, too. I want you to know. And I... <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, she was a nice girl. And we, she was, uh, it was sufficiently close to the end of the Second World War where they were still having USO dances. See, I didn't stay very long in San Quentin. I'm sure you can figure that out by the nature of the crime that I committed. I didn't stay very long as time is measured there. Very long by subjective time, but uh, anyway, the, I get out and I went to a USO dance in a hospital in Pasadena, and I met this girl, she worked for the Bell Telephone Company, and now, as I told you, when, if my mouth was moving, I was lying. That's the, on the top of my inventory, in my inventory, the very first words in my inventory are, I am a liar. Very first words, no difficulty, nothing Freudian about that. I didn't have any problem. That's the exact, that's a moral inventory to start with. I'll tell you, I am a liar. Anyway, so I'm dancing with this girl. Her name is Helen. And uh, I'm telling her, I don't have two nickels to rub together. I don't have a bicycle. I'm telling her about my Ferrari or some kind of an automobile. And I'm going to, and I make this date with her. And, and, and I, I, I didn't expect her to say yes. And she said yes. Now I've got to go pick her up in the Ferrari that I haven't got and spend the money on her that I don't have, and I don't know what, how I'm going to handle this. But I worked it out. I got a bottle of acid, and muriatic acid, uncut muriatic acid, and I'd, I'd, I'd put a handkerchief over my arm, and I'd put a little drop there, and I'd let it burn. Then put a little more. Let it burn all night long. And it brought two big holes about that big right down to the bone. Boom. All the way down. Now I went over to this very same hospital where I'm at. I, 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 uh, I got in bed. I said, may I have the telephone, please? And I called her up. I said, hello, Helen. Listen, Helen, a terrible thing happened on the way over to pick you up the other night. I got involved with the Los Angeles City bus. Got rid of the, the Ferrari that way. Just told it out, you see. And she comes over. She brings me candy and cigarettes. And you think she bought the story? You better believe it. She's the mother of all my children. And she doesn't know that story to this day, as far as I know. Now, she probably does because my kids have been in uh, meetings where I have uh, told that story. And so she's, but I, I never saw any reason for telling Helen that. I mean, 
I don't see what good that would have done Helen. Uh, you know, except when to do so would injure them or others. And I really don't know where that would have helped Helen to tell that story as, a, as an amends. And if I ever think of any reason why that should be an amends, or you can tell me why I should tell Helen, I will. But the point that I want to make is that it's so much easier. You see, some people, I've heard some people, I've watched some people, when I tell that story, and I don't always ever tell any story twice, but when I tell that story, uh, I've seen some people squirm and say, ooh, ooh. Well, they're not thinking about, it's usually an Al-Anon, because they think, they think that hurts. But what's worse is to say, look, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, I'm a drunk, I'm a no-good bum. That's why I didn't keep the date with you. That hurts. So it's much easier, you see, to mutilate yourself and do things like that. And I thought I was alone again until I, the man told me about swallowing the half-crowns. And then I told about this, and I've met more guys that have done more weird things. And I know there's somebody in this room that, that can top me in spades. I know a guy that I know a guy that, that owns his own company out in Orange County. I mean, he's got his own Learjet, a big company. He and he, you know, he does not have to make excuses for not showing up to work, but he does. It's his company, and he used to call up whenever he was on a drunk, or he'd, he'd call up and say to his secretary, "I got the flu." He'd just never say, "I'm hungover." Don't feel like I mean, I had to give an excuse. We always have to give an excuse. He said, I got the flu, he'd say. Well, one day he got tired of saying I got the flu, and for some inexplicable reason, he says, he said, I said, uh, I got the, I got the uh, small pox, the chicken pox, the ones that doesn't kill. The ch- I got chicken pox, and he hung up the telephone. And he thought, my God, what have I done? That leaves scars all over your face, doesn't it? So he went to the bathroom, got the razor blade, to look in front of the mirror, and they, little mark, all over your face like this. Now, when they just turned just right... He went back to his own company where they couldn't find him no matter what he did and felt good about it. Okay, no, that's enough of that. But I, I just wanted to tell you that I call this, this is, this is what I call the alcoholic mentality. The alcoholic mentality is not understanding social drinkers also. Uh, social drinkers are inexplicable. Uh, my father, my brother, they're social drinkers. I don't understand them at all. My father is, uh, oh, is 80 years old, and he's healthy and strong. He's a big guy, big as Cappy. He's healthy. I don't know what I'm going to throw back to something. Great big healthy man my father is. And Sybil and I, when we were uh, at um, his 70th AA birthday, we watched him, and he had a can and a half of beer. A can and a half. And he said to me, Bob, get me a cup of coffee. I'm beginning to feel it. <laughs> well, why does he, you know, <laughs> I don't understand that. At all. My brother, my brother and I, we met during the Second World War. I'm a Marine Corps, Bill's in the Navy. Wonderful experience. My God, two brothers, the war is going on. We're both in the Pacific. We don't know if we'll ever see one another again. God, we hug, we kiss, we go ashore to some gym, but we're having a great time. The sun hadn't set, as I recall it, when my brother said, let's go. Let's go where? (laughs) He says, back to the base. I said, why? He said, because we've had enough. What do you mean we've had enough? I still have money. As long as I had money, we still we haven't had enough. Now, when I ran out of money, that's when I began, I never really had enough, but I began to think that we ought to do something about it. But Bill got mad at me. Bill said, uh, Bob, why don't you drink like I do? And I got just as mad at my brother, and I said, why don't you drink like I do? And to this day, I'll never understand why he even bothers, or why my father bothers. Why don't they drink cocoa? 
If they don't want to feel it, why don't they drink really? Now this is, this is the difference between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic. The non-alcoholics in this room understand that. They know why. Now we'll, tomorrow we'll tell you why she doesn't want to feel it. But the alcoholic can't understand it. That's what it makes you more alert, more sharp, more sensitive to the things of the world. More, I mean, you're astute. You're brilliant. You're clever. You're, who the hell doesn't want to be all these wonderful things? But they don't want to do that. We know something they don't know. We know what booze is for. Booze is for what it does to us. Booze is for the what it makes. It, makes it. it is. It really is. I can't imagine it's for anything else. It's for what it does and how it makes us feel. In here. In here. Over here. Anywhere. And when it begins to do that, for someone to even offer you a cup of coffee is an insult. We invest a lot of time and energy to get that way. And everybody keeps wanting us not to get that way. Well, anyway, that's the difference between an alcoholic and a social drinker. Now, newcomers, we have a uh, phrase in AA called identification. Identification means you understand what I'm talking about. You understand what all the AAs are talking about. And one of the surest signs of identification is laughter. And so, newcomers up there... <laughs> If you were laughing at anything I was saying just now, welcome to the club. <laughs> you can quit wondering whether or not you're an alcoholic. Because, you know, this is something I found out, and I've known this for a long time. This may help you if you're still wondering whether or not you're an alcoholic. Did you know that only alcoholics wonder if they're alcoholics? In fact, <laughs> now, unfortunately, in Alcoholics Anonymous, it isn't what you know, it's what you do. I have some friends, and I used to belong to the club. We used to call it the Hold Out As Long As You Can Club. Uh, was a, there's a guy named Johnny, Johnny, one of Sybil's many husbands. Uh, Jim, Red, Tom, and Bob, and we we held out as long as we could. That is with sobriety. Now, I, I probably have created the impression, and I hope that I haven't created the impression. And I'm going to take the coat off. May I please take my coat off? You see what a charming thing I am. Uh, it's very warm up here. I usually don't. I'm a carpenter. I don't dress like this. Uh, I. It's very warm. Uh, I'd like to tell you I was sober from where it go. I'd like to tell you, but it wouldn't be the truth if I told you that. Uh, the worst drinking of my life, the worst drinking, the worst agony, the worst misery, the most hell I have ever been in in my entire life happened after I met Alcoholics Anonymous, not before. Before I met AA, I could drink with impunity. I, I didn't know about you.
I didn't know there was a world full of people just like me, and I didn't know. And I could drink with impunity, but once I came to AA, never again, and I got bad news for you, newcomer, you're in the same boat. You are doomed. <laughs> never again will you ever drink with fun. There's no more fun for you now. You've met us. The honeymoon is over if it was ever on. It's over now. If you're an alcoholic, you know now that there's a place called Alcoholics Anonymous. You know now that there's a bunch of guys and gals who drank like you. In fact, you put us all together and make your drink and look like a pussycat. And they don't drink anymore, and they like it that way. Now, I didn't drink for five years in San Quentin, but I didn't like it that way. But here at Alcoholics Anonymous, we're sober and we like it that way. Now, not to stay sober after you've come to AA is, 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 a, is a horrible, terrifying experience. Let me tell you, I was sober. Now, let me first of all tell you, I'll be 19 years sober this month, in case you wonder if I ever got sober. Uh, this month is my 19th year, and I'm very glad of that. Now, that's, that's fine. I, thank you. In case I forget to say that, you know, you guy will use it. The guy ever gets sober, uh, yeah. But it, it was it was it was a long and perhaps unnecessarily hard route. This I don't know. This I don't know. But it was a miserable thing, and maybe I can spare somebody that misery by uh, laying some of these things out here for you to look at that uh, that I did. First of all, I had five one-year birthday cakes. Five of them. The point that I'm trying to make there is that I wasn't a casual member of AA, exactly. I had five one-year birthday cakes. I had two two-year birthday cakes. And I had one three-year birthday cakes. Add them up. That's a lot of years. But I kept getting drunk. And I kept, it, was, it was so miserable. I, I, I don't know how to... If I could describe that, that misery. I used to go to a group called The Hole in the Ground. That's where I met Sybil. It was a, it's a wonderful group, it's still there. Her brother started. It's been going now for over 40 years. She and her brother both started it there. And the, they call it the hole in the ground because it's in a basement. At ground level, the windows are situated. So that any pedestrian walking down the street wants to see how people stay sober, all he has to do is look in. There you are, you know. There's the hole in the ground down there. And uh, now... This is where I used to go. This is where I... I that first night was, was some kind of a fluke. I don't know why. But I finally... That from then on, I, I got into this hole-in-the-ground meeting, and, and I loved AA. I loved the people. I mean, I was enthusiastic, gung-ho, put on dances, roundups, you name it. I did everything. I took fifth steps, fourth steps, inventories. I did. Did all these things. Washed the coffee cups, picked up ashtrays, led meetings, talked. Every once in a while I got drunk. How come? Every once in a while I got drunk. Well, I forgot to tell you that I was an atheist. I wonder if that could have had anything to do with it. I was an atheist. I hope you get the past tense. Used to be, was. Now, I no longer am an atheist. Tonight, I'm an ex-Marine, an ex-Con, an ex-atheist who can stand up here and tell you that I have a God that sustains me daily without which I could not survive. 
I tried too long and too hard to do this thing on my own. Didn't need this God thing at all. Now, if anybody ever gave it a hard, good hard shot, I'm the guy that gave it a good hard shot. I'm not saying I'm the guy that gave it the hardest shot, but I tried hard and long to resist this thing called God or a higher power. And it almost killed me, and that's a fact. It almost killed me. Now, I say I'm an atheist because my father, to this day, is still an atheist. Now, I imagine that many people, when you hear the word atheist, you must get the vision of some horrible werewolf monster with fangs. My father's a very nice man. My father's a kind, sweet man. He's an atheist, and he raised me an atheist. And even he regrets that, although he's still an atheist. He still says one should raise a child of the belief of God. It helps. Even he says that now. But that's another story also. I... I remember one time walking down the street, and uh, one, I had, you see, I used to go back to the hole in the ground, and I'd keep coming back and keep coming back. And I heard a guy once describe this about those of us, and I'm sure there's someone in this room who knows what I'm talking about, those of us who have experienced and tasted this good way of life, and then to have turned our back on it for whatever purpose, for whatever reason, and then to have to come back again. Often it's like going around to the back door of a mansion we once owned, and asking for a handout. And that's the way I felt. Every time I felt, oh, here I come back, hat in hand. And uh, it was a very miserable feeling. And finally, I got to where I couldn't even go back to the same group. I went by the hole in the ground one night. I was going to go in. And I looked in the window. And I had an old coat on, you know. And um, I was walking around town now, by now, with no socks in my shoes and no underwear on. And, I, uh, I'm looking in the window and I can hear Sybil talking down there and the other guys and people that I loved and all my friends. And I just couldn't go back. I just couldn't drag myself in there. And I, uh, I walked off down the road off into the night, you know. Finally, I, you know, we get beat so bad we have no place to go and we drag ourselves back. And so this last time I dragged myself back, knowing it wasn't going to work, uh, I went back because I was exhausted. I mean, exhausted. I was walking around town. I'd hear my mother's voice saying, Bobby, Bobby. And uh, it was a bad feeling. And, and I, I, I wanted some rest. I needed some rest. That's all I went back for because I knew I was a total failure. I knew that I couldn't take another defeat. I knew I would go to AA. I knew I would get a good feeling for a while. I knew that maybe I'd stay sober a few months. I always did. But I knew that eventually I would get drunk, and then I knew I, was, I would die, because that had to be the end. And I, I, I just knew I couldn't take another defeat of that caliber. Well, anyway, I went back, but there was a slight difference. I think the slight difference was, first of all, that now all the people... Of course, the alcoholic sneer was gone. The smart guy was gone. The guy that knew all the answers. The cutie pie was gone now, and he was beat down pretty bad. And the, uh, all the people I admired... All the people I admired, and I had my heroes in AA, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and I still have my heroes in AA. And all of my heroes, because after all they say this is a program of attraction rather than promotion, well, what's attractive about it? Well, I'll admit this is attractive, but we usually don't meet in rooms like this. We usually meet in funny little rooms around the world, and so it isn't the rooms we meet in, it's the people that's attractive about alcoholics. It's the people, and they were my heroes, many of them, and all of my heroes without doubt said, they had a power 
that they called God. And I knew that if I didn't find this thing they called God, I was going to die. I just knew this. So in the time that I have left, let me tell you how I made this transition from a hardcore atheist to a man who stands up in here and says, I have a God that sustains me daily. First of all, I, I think the real key was, now I wanted to. Now I wanted to. In other words, I was willing. And so I began to become, I, I became a seeker of this thing that you folks called God. And I read all kinds of spiritual books and went goofy, goofy, goofy. But I didn't drink anymore for a while at all. I've never had a drink since that time. But I, oh, I'd read all these uh, spiritual books. And I um, remember one night I was at a meeting and a man said, now here's where little things that begin to drop funny little things in, in, in your lap. Uh, this guy said, he, he was talking about God. Now he said, in our pursuit of God, we're like little kids chasing butterflies. Now this is where the butterfly comes in. this very big thing in my life, this butterfly. He says, in our pursuit of God, we're like little children chasing butterflies. He says, you know, we see the pretty butterfly, and as children, we want to grab it in our hands and examine it more closely. We don't want to hurt it. So he says, we reach over and we grab the butterfly to examine it more closely. But he says, in so doing, as we hold it in our hand, the butterfly loses its glitter and it dies. That's the way it is with butterflies. And that's the way it was with me. I felt that I had to know and understand and analyze this thing called God intimately before I could possibly utilize it. And what this man was saying, in essence, was easy does it. You don't have to know all about God. Look at it work. Look at it work. Here in Blackstone, tonight, look at it work. They're going to flit around the room, the butterfly, figuratively speaking. It works. That's all you really have to know. Easy does it. Well, the easy did make it was so... Uh, to me, I, I thought, yes, good Lord, yes, look at it work. Look at I mean, the thousands of AA meetings that are going on all the time. Countless thousands of people staying sober with this great power called AA. Leave it alone, by the works. Well, when I was sober... Ten years, the butterfly thing was so important to me. Sybil bought me a butterfly. And some of you have seen my butterfly, and some of you haven't seen my butterfly. So I'm going to undress for you and show you my butterfly. See, see, see my butterfly there? Sybil bought that for me. It's got a little whistle on it there. Uh, she, uh, she bought it in a women's store in Los Angeles. It's, it's intended for something else. I keep hoping. Um, now, I, I tell you, this whistle is very handy. This whistle is very handy. I have a lot of little gimmicks I use. Uh, see, I, 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 I found out that, that what I was going to have to do, and I always knew it, that they said, you're going to have to have some kind of a personality change, Bob, but there's no hope. No hope for you. You're going to have to have a personality change. Well, how do you, how do you deliberately have a personality change. How do you do that? How do you deliberately become somebody else? I don't know. Well, you're not supposed to become somebody else. But I got to thinking, well, the only thing I can do is maybe control my profanity a little bit. Because, see, I used to be driving down a freeway, and some guy would cut me out. Now, Hal Marley knows I got a Volkswagen. And the last time I saw him out there, somebody had cut me out. I picked him up at the Biltmore Hotel with one door all stove, and he had to crawl him through the window. But the... I'm dry. Now, when somebody cussed me out on the Hollywood Freeway in the old days, I would, I would chase him in my Volkswagen, see? And, and I'd start cussing and swearing, and the upholstery would peel off the inside. Uh, 
And, and this guy doesn't know I'm alive. And he's just going on peacefully down the road. And, and by the time I get to work, I'm a nervous wreck. And I thought, this has got to stop. I mean, because what happens, you see, my profanity is fueling my temper, and I'm becoming insane. So finally I got it down to obscene sign languages for a while, and then uh, I, that, didn't, that didn't work so well easy either. So finally now what I do is I got it down to, uh, I just, uh, I mean, some guy cuts me out on the freeway. You understand, I don't have to fumble for it like this because I never wear a necktie. Uh, but I, uh, some guy cuts me out on the freeway, and uh, I just reach down, grab my whistle, go, easy does it, go to hell. And, uh, and it's all right, it works, you know. And um, I have a bunch of little things I do like that. I have a, I have a locomotive bell on my patio that I keep there for a, uh, a dear friend. Uh, he's a locomotive engineer up in uh, Canada, and he drives a locomotive out of Jasper down into British Columbia. And uh, now, in our tenth step, we, where uh, it says that we uh, continue to take a personal inventory when wrong, promptly admit it. Now, who am I wrong with most in this world? Sybil. I mean, she's the one I'm with most in this world all the time. My wife, naturally. I'm with her more than anybody else in this world. I mean, I'm on her foot all the time since I had a heart attack last year, and she just, this poor girl, she really has a lot of trouble getting me out of the kitchen. I'm telling her how to cook these days. I don't know how to cook myself, but I'm telling her, boy, she can't stand it. But, uh, so, you know, Sybil and I will have our little, little spats. And it says, when wrong, promptly admitted. And I found that this is, this is one of the most important things of all. When, when I'm wrong, if I don't admit it, I've just taken a brick out of this great bulwark of sobriety that I've been building. And people don't have slips by being standing up here tonight and going out getting drunk in the morning. It takes a little time. It takes a little time. And the slip begins way back where I forgot to do something that I should have done. When I forgot to apologize to my wife. For some, instead of, this time by God, she's wrong and I'm not going to apologize. Well... When we have these little skits, uh, little, little things like that at the house, I'll, um, I'll go outside. You know, I'm mad. I'm, what the heck? I'm a human being. I'm mad. I'm really mad. So I go outside. But uh, I'll see the, the big bell there. And underneath the bell on the patio is a bronze plaque of the serenity prayer. So I read the serenity prayer. That brings me back to sanity. I give the, the lanyard on this bell three clangs. Now, still in the kitchen, she hears that bell ring, and she knows that's old Bob making his amends, you see. I put a bell in the kitchen for her. She hasn't rang back yet. And that's a fact. <laughs> so I, I go through life blowing my whistle and ringing my bell and <laughs> staying sober. You know, yeah, I know it's weird. <laughs> but so are you. It's, um, it's that weirdness, that, uh, that uh, knowing that you are like me, that makes everything all right. Makes everything all right. Let me tell you that I had a experience uh, in San Quentin. Uh, I had a cell partner that tattooed his fist. The guys in prison have uh, left-handed men tattoo their right hand, and right-handed men tattoo their left hand. Or sometimes they, I didn't know, I escaped it somehow. They tattoo their, their ankles. You can get to those easier. They tattoo little stars and crosses and mother and things like that on their legs. And, um, or some girl they're madly in love with until they get out, and then they have to erase that. And um, then... Uh, but this guy tattooed his hand, L-O-V-E. I thought that was a nice thing for him to do. And when it got all well, he hit me right in the mouth with love. Now, I didn't see anything particularly 
strange about that, but uh, I probably give him a little love back. I don't know. I don't recall that too much. But the point I'm trying to make is I found out something that's very helpful to me, me the atheist. I found out something that, that makes step three, which says we make a decision to turn our will and life over to the care of God, uh, makes it very easy. I found uh, something that makes step 11 where I try to improve my conscious conduct with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for me. I found it very easy. It makes it very easy. I have no difficulty with it anymore. How could an atheist, a former atheist, say that? Well, I was reading it tonight up there in that book. I want to, you've got a book here in the, in the, in the building, in the rooms that I want to take home with me called Good News. I love the little pictures in there. It's, it's a marvelous book. I want to buy that book if it's for sale. I really want to take it. So if somebody can tell me how to get that book, I want to buy it. But now I'm not a church man. I don't go to church. So I'm not going to preach to you. But I found out something that, that was so useful to me about this God thing. That you know, that God is love. Big flash. Huh? I've heard that all my life. I've heard that all my life. I've seen it on tombstones. I've seen it on the stained glass windows. I've seen it on those little doilies that ladies make and put up on the wall. God is love. But it never meant much to me until I had this thing broken down to me by my sponsor about what love is that was passed on to him by this old Greek named Paul and who wrote in Corinthians 1.13 about God is love. And he goes on to tell what love is. And he's all the time thinking that, that God is love. And then he says that love, love is, is like what you are right now. Love is patient. See, you're being patient right now. You're being godlike. You see, I know that you hope I know what time it is. <laughs> I know that. But you're being, I don't see any of you snapping your wristwatch ban at me to remind me. I used to stand in the back row, you know, and say, come on, fellow, we got a lot of things to do here. And I start waving my wristwatch ban at him about now. No, you're being patient. Well, he said, love is patient. Long-suffering, I think, is the term he used, but I hope that that doesn't apply here, that you're long-suffering. Let's just say you're suffering, you're, you're patient. He said that love is kind, and love is unselfish, and that love is honest, and that love is slow to anger, and love does not behave itself unseemly. In other words, love has good manners. Now, if, that is, if God is love, and that's what love is, I, as a former atheist, have no quarrel with that definition of God at all. And so now I know what it is I want to turn my will and my life over to the care of. Now I know what it is that I want to draw closer to those things I just enumerated. So if for a guy like me who wants to have a personality change and wants to draw closer to the God that he understands, the, one of the easiest things that I can do is not behave myself unseemly, not offend. And I have found that the lack of profanity never offends anyone. Because, as you know now, I'm an ex-Marine, I'm an ex-convict. I'm a construction worker. There is no profanity with which I am not fluent. But I have found that the lack of profanity never offends anyone. And I don't want to drive anyone off into the night. There's stuff that could come out of my mouth and used to come out of my mouth that would send it down at the hole in the ground. They used to say, it doesn't matter what you say. Swear any way you like. If they want this program bad enough, they'll come back. No, they won't. No. There are some people who didn't come from where I came from 
who have lived relatively sheltered lives by my standards, and they won't come back if they think they have to associate with a bunch of gutter snipes like I used to be. And they'll just die. And so I, I go by the, the, the idea that the lack of profanity never offended anyone, and it works okay. Well, that's my definition of God, which is not my definition at all. It's nothing new. One night, and then I'm going to sit down. One night, a lady at an AA meeting made everything all very clear for me. I wasn't listening any more than I'm under any illusion that you're all listening to me and hanging on bated breath with every word that I utter. I know that that's not possible because I know that we don't have that kind of attention spans. There's lots of things going on in your minds right now, especially what time is it. But the So I wasn't listening that night any more than I think that you were listening. So all of a sudden this woman, her name is Ellen Salazar, she has died. Uh, she was talking to a group about this size in the North Hollywood Clubhouse, and she uh, got stuck in her thoughts, her track, her train of thought suddenly just left her. She didn't know what she was going to say next, and so she just stood there at the podium like this, petrified, looking out at the group. And in those days, they used to turn the lights down and put a spotlight on the speaker, which is a dumb way to do things, but anyway, they did. And uh, she just stood there like this, and the... Uh, Leader went out and got her a drink of water and came back, and she still didn't say anything. Now everybody's listening. She's not talking, but everybody's listening. And we're, now I'm, I'm listening too, and I'm hurting for this woman because you don't like to see a person in a spot like that, you know? And, and so I'm, I'm saying to myself, I'm saying, come on, baby, start talking. Start talking. I'll trade you my glib tongue for whatever it is you're talking about. But for God's sake, I'm hurting watching you hurt, so start talking. And she started to talk. Now, somebody told me I was praying for that girl. Can you imagine that? I used to th think that prayer was now I lay down to sleep. But they said, no, prayer can just be a good thought for the guy or the gal sitting next to you. And here's what she said. And never again have I been even troubled with the word God. She said, maybe, perhaps, probably, in all probability, the closest that you or I or anybody else will ever come to finding God will be in the seeking. Wow, that maybe the closest that you or I or anybody else will ever come to finding God will be in the seeking. And I thought, girly, if you're right, and for me I intuitively feel that you are right, then I've been right a long, long time and I didn't know it because I've been seeking. And then my mind flipped back, you know, to those very first days, those very, very first days with those old toothless men. And I wanted... That's such a great thing to know. Why didn't they tell me? With their keen alcoholic minds. Furthermore, why didn't they put it in the book? Well, you know, my dear friend and your dear friend Chuck, Chuck C. He prefers to be called Chuck C. I call myself Bob Corwin because I prefer to be called Bob Corwin, C-O-R-W-I-N. But that's my thing. I maintain that I have no anonymity here with you at this level. But uh, Chuck says... And I used to wonder what he meant. You can't see till you can see, and you can't hear till you can hear. And I thought, well, I see him, I hear him, what's he talking about? He's just being cute. But he was absolutely right, because I could not see and I could not hear, because at the first meeting that I ever went to, and at every meeting I've ever gone to since, including this meeting tonight, they have always said, in essence, that maybe the closest we'd ever come to finding God would be in the seeking. Only they said it better. Those old men, and they did put it in the book. Now, this may not sound like any great revelation to you at first because you always hear it read. Len read it to us tonight. He concluded his reading in the fifth chapter with, 
God could and would if he were sought. But you say, okay, so what? Well, the so what is that I never really understood it that way. I heard it that way, but it settled down into my consciousness, God could and would if he were found. But it doesn't say that. It says that all you and I have to do in the grip of this terrible killer of a disease, which no human power can relieve, all we have to do is seek God and we'll be okay. And she said, maybe that's the closest we'd ever come to finding God. And the book said, that's the closest that's necessary. We're going to be all right. I, I would love to talk to you forever. I, I am so filled with AA and with love that it, this evening. Maybe tomorrow I'll be a grouchy old man again. I don't know. But right now I, I could talk till sun up. But I know you're glad to know that I won't. But I want to thank you Oh, I want to thank the, the committee and the board of trustees, and I wish I knew some of you by name, so therefore I'm not going to name half the trustees and leave the rest out, because then we're really in trouble. But I want to thank them all for doing all the things that makes it necessary for a guy like me to come here. Do you know that this hall that we're sitting in, that this main building was built in 1922, the year I was born? Hmm. I think about that... I wonder if some carpenter, you know, I, a carpenter sometimes has the feeling that one day's work is forever because we do sometimes build things that last a long time. And I wonder, I don't want to get all washy about this, uh, but it does kind of blow my mind to realize that this place was built. The day I was being born, some of this work was going on. And some guy was thinking maybe, there's a guy being born somewhere right now, way out on the West Coast. And he's going to have a hard life. And 60 years later, he's going to stand up here and tell you, everything's okay. If you just keep coming back. Thank you very much. <laughs>